We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello? We're on to Cincinnati. You play to win the game. It was all that Dan Marino's fault. Everyone knows that. When it's too tough for them, it's just right for us. Rockpile Report, AFC East Roundup, hosted by Bill's season ticket holder, Drew Gear, a part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the AFC East Roundup Podcast. I'm your host, Bill's season ticket holder, Drew Gear. That's my producer, Chris Kruger. And we're here looking at the final week of the NFL season, week 18. Chris, first of all, <laughs> oh, no, I see what you're getting out of the fridge. Yeah. Even though I'm working tonight, I will have the strawberry daiquiri for picking the Patriots in the final week of the season. Ah. Nothing like somebody at work finding out that this exists and we're like, hey, we heard you were drinking alcohol before you came to work. We're going to have to let you. But it's Five a Se- hours. But it's a Seagram's. But it's a Seagram's. It's so good when it hits your lips. <laughs> it's only 3.2% alcohol. You run that down while I read down the standings. The final AFC East standings. The Buffalo Bills finished the season 11-6. and six. They clinched the AFC East for a second consecutive year, knocking off the hapless Jets for the second time this season. New England continued their streak of nightmare games in Miami, falling to 10-7 and seven after they lose before the final gun of the Bills game could even sound. And they enter the playoffs with more questions than answers. For Miami, they end their season on a high note, beating the Patriots and finishing with their second consecutive winning season, only to take everything that they've been building and fire it directly into the sun. And then there's the New York Jets. The Jets' season, luckily for Zach Wilson's sake, mercifully ended in that loss to the Buffalo Bills. A game that saw them, him essentially running for his life, them drop to 4-13 and 13 on the season, and cement themselves in, I believe, the top five of the NFL draft. And here to talk to us about all of the, f- both the game and the fallout, is Scott Mason from Play Like a Jet. As always, how are you feeling, Scott? Hey, boys. Kind of glad the regular season's over, not going to lie. It's time to get on to the fun stuff, which is what <laughs> you say when you're stuff. a Jets fan, more or less. <laughs> uh, they ended up with the number four pick in a draft where, at the moment, there appears to be a consensus top three players, so go figure. And if only Trevor Lawrence would have run into the end zone a couple of weeks ago, like some of us said, would have been the best result. The Jets would be picking first instead of fourth. So that's pretty much how it is. Plus, as I speak to you right now, it's the coldest day of the year here near New York City. So uh, essentially what I'm saying is I'm a little bit of good, a little bit of bad. <laughs> So, looking at the aftermath of this football game, that makeshift backup riddled offensive line couldn't have done any worse if it tried. I mean, I'm happy I got to see this in person. It was ugly. I mean, I'm middle of the game. I got a text message from my wife, and she goes, "She's she had taken my son over to a family, one of her girlfriend's houses, and she was her husband had the game on, and our kids are playing together and." She goes, I just saw a graphic that says that 
Zach Wilson has more knockdowns than he has pass attempts. Is that bad? And yeah. I burst out laughing because I was like, honey, I love you. <laughs> I love the fact that you see a number and you're like, that seems bad. It sounds bad. I better text Drew and clarify. <laughs> so to be so to be on the receiving end of that as a fan and watching this line just get shredded the way that it did. I mean, eight sacks allowed, 14 total quarterback hits. You talk every week about these games and that the the interest for you was trying to evaluate your quarterback. How much quarterback evaluation can you really do when he's running for his life? There's only one one thing you can really say about that as far as Zach Wilson goes, and that's if this game had happened early in the season, I'm convinced he throws four interceptions just trying to be a hero. In this game, if nothing else, even though he got pounded and destroyed and didn't really have an opportunity to do anything, at least he didn't make any back-breaking mistakes. And because of that, shockingly enough, the Jets were still in the game late into, uh, I believe it was about eight minutes left that the Bills scored that touchdown that really put the game away and made it 20-10. to 10. Now, I'd argue that a big part of the reason for that was, while he is one of the best in the league, Josh Allen, not really on his game. He missed numerous opportunities to throw for touchdowns. I've been pointing this out to Jets fans all week who keep talking about how the defense actually played well and how the cornerbacks are not actually a problem. If Allen hits several of the times that Diggs and Davis both were wide open, like we're talking like Scott, Staff, and Creed with arms wide open open, <laughs> then the Bills probably win this thing like 45-10. to 10. That said, the fact that Wilson didn't make those really bad mistakes meant that even despite the fact that the Bills could have very easily destroyed them, they didn't, and so with them not making those mistakes, the Jets actually had the game on the table late. So I think that's a positive. Beyond that, there's not really much you can say for reasons that you already went into. And look, ultimately, as I said on my post-game report show, today, uh, that game on Sunday, the Jets clinched a top-five pick and the Bills clinched the AFC East. These are two teams that are in very different places right now. Oh, for sure. But I'll tell you what, I bet you everybody felt pretty good about that, right? Like, everybody felt pretty good about the fact that, okay, we get to walk away from this thing knowing that we're on top of the division. You guys got to walk away from this thing knowing that, like, hey, <laughs> hey, we uh, we did the thing, right? We finished the season with a high draft pick. We're going to have a lot of capital, and we didn't get the kid killed. And in the and yeah, right. I, I'd almost argue that you did find some things. I mean, the Jets weren't forcing a ton of the miscues. To your point, you saw wide yeah. open receivers that Josh just missed. You saw, I mean, I'm looking at th- that it happened right in the end zone in front of us. The the, the drop touchdown, right? The ball hits him in the hands, yeah. and he. Dro- but then they're like, oh well, he stepped out of bounds beforehand. You look at it and you go, okay, well. I give Josh credit for ripping that ball in there, just fitting that thing into a window. Gabe Davis was, I mean, that, that would have been a difficult catch anyway. And I feel like that was the narrative of the day was that we saw a lot of Josh Allen fitting balls into places where your cornerbacks weren't contesting them. But whenever they were to a guy named Gabe Davis, I mean, what was he? Four, 14 targets, three catches. And most of his day was up against Bryce Hall. Now, he did get open a couple times, and he did make some plays. He had almost 40 yards receiving. But it came Well, there was one play where he straight up hooked Bryce Hall. I mean, absolutely cooked him for what should have been an easy touchdown. And Allen overthrew him by about 10 yards. (laughs) Yes, and that's it. And it's like, okay, so that's the game we're playing today, I guess. Like, that's it. He's These downfield shots that on any other day with a little bit less wind, because the wind was... Right, And this is where I hate the people who scream about getting a dome. But this is the stuff you have to contend with, Josh. I mean, a part of me says that's a game where you as an offensive coordinator have to know, hey, I've got a... This team does a poor job of managing Josh, I feel like. Because, now, Chris, you've seen this firsthand. I sometimes, all of the terrible things about me... All of my personality warts, my flaws, the things that make me kind of a bad person sometimes. Mm-hmm. 
I have this habit where I essentially just kind of shrug my shoulders and go, listen, I'm like rain. I'm like a force of nature. I just exist. The rest, it's on the rest of you to manage me. <laughs> and maybe that's not fair to my friends, <laughs> my family, the rest <laughs> of the world at large, but that's the way I live. And so <laughs> I feel like Josh Allen is the same way. I feel like Josh Allen is the type of guy who he goes, listen, if I feel like I want to win, if I feel like I need to do something to win, I'm going to do it unless you give me a reason not to. It's on you to give me those options. They didn't do that on Sunday. And I give some credit to what your defensive line was able to do. I mean, Spencer Brown allowed seven pressures in this game, which nobody's talking about this week. No Bills fans out there going, man, Spencer Brown got cooked this week. How do you... What did you think of the performance of your defensive line coming out of this? I mean, the problem is most of the way Allen was able to have open receivers regardless of pressure, and and that's something that, that you really have to take into account for the Jets going forward because a lot of people will, will say, well, this defensive line has all these really good players on it, and yet they're not getting these sacks and and all that, and and if memory serves, I don't think they had any sacks on Josh Allen. I could be incorrect on that. So they weren't getting home, and and Allen was still able to to make these throws. But ultimately, what it shows you is that even when the defensive line is able to get some heat on the quarterback, they have to get sacks, or they just aren't able to do anything in coverage other than hope that the quarterback misfires when you're playing against a good team. Now, it's one thing when you're playing Trevor Lawrence or somebody like that in the Jaguars. Nothing against Lawrence personally. It's just he doesn't have much to work with there. Against the Bills, you really just got to get lucky, which the Jets did for a lot of the day. And this kind of goes back to what I've been saying for most of the year. If the Jets are serious about doing something next year, and I don't mean contending for a Super Bowl, but what I mean is they've got to at least go into December in the mix. If they don't do that, Joe Douglas is probably going to get fired because, look, this team has won 13 games in the last three years. That can't happen a fourth year in a row with Joe Douglas as the general manager. If it does, he's in big trouble. If he doesn't get fired, he'll be pretty close. And so, to me, the two biggest deficiencies are you got to fix the pass rush and have a combination of guys that can get heat but also get home, and then you've got to fix the pass coverage because people keep – trying to say that the corners were not a problem this year. But if you really take a look, a lot of those third downs, they got cooked all throughout the year. Tons of times, Brandon Eccles just not good enough to be a starting cornerback. And Bryce Hall is a solid corner, but he's not good enough to be on a team's best weapon for any significant portion of the day. So that kind of is what it reinforced, is that even if the defensive line is doing something, they need major upgrades in other areas because – they were the third. They were the thirty-second ranked defense in the league, and if that happens again next year, unless Zach Wilson magically turns into Justin Herbert almost overnight, there's no way this team's going to win more than five, six games max, and then we could be looking at reshuffling the deck again. And I feel like that's a nightmare scenario for the Jets because you guys just started, just started getting a little bit of your swagger back. You just started getting some of your. I don't know. I don't know. I just feel like you guys actually started to find something. So some reason is fans to say, okay, maybe this won't, maybe the sky won't fall on us again because there's been a lot of hope about Joe Douglas. Now it's, this is where the heavy lifting comes in. You hired your coach, right? Because the previous coach was a holdover. So now he's gone Mm -hmm. and you say, now I've got my guy. We drafted our quarterback now is the time when you got to make it happen. And so you guys are about to take off on, I mean, it's going to be an interesting summer. And I'll tell you from a content producer standpoint, you guys have gold at your hands because this is a summer where there's a lot of heavy lifting and a lot of stuff to talk about. And a lot of interesting things are going to happen over there in, in New Jersey. Here's the question that I have for you before I let you go. What are you going to do with your first Jets football this Sunday? What what happens? I mean, the season's over. There's nothing else. What do you do on that football Sunday? Probably end up doing the same thing that I do most football Sundays, watching football. I just won't be watching the Jets. See? boy. Uh, you know, the, the, main, the main difference will, will be that I'm not watching the Jets, but also I won't have to worry about 
scrambling after the game to coordinate with Andy Vasquez from NorthJersey.com to figure out a time after he gets out of the press room and all that to put together a post-game report. Uh, that's that's a nice thing that I don't have to necessarily worry about anymore. But I mean, ultimately, I'll be watching the games and I'll I'll start in my head like thinking about ideas for what the Jets could do in the offseason. Because guys, I'll tell you this much: you know how the fan bases of these teams are, and this is not in no way exclusive to. Bills fans or Jets fans, every fan base seems to think this way. You've got a lot of guys that are, you know, a lot of people that are, that are going to be available in free agency. You know, you look at a guy like J.C. Jackson, for example. You take a look at uh, uh, some of the other players that, that could be available, like Michael Gallup, right? And so you get somebody who's a Jets fan saying, oh, man, their Jets are going to go after J.C. Jackson. They're going to get Michael Gallup, this and that. And you know how this goes. Most of the good free agents have a bunch of teams bidding for them. They have plenty of options. And then they have the opportunity to go to a better team than, than, you know, the Jets, for example. And then you also have a lot of these guys, like you remember a couple of years ago, Joe Tooney, the Patriots franchise tagged him, and the Jets didn't even have an opportunity to go after him. I suspect that will probably happen with somebody like J.C. Jackson this year. So what I always tell people is, Get ready for the offseason, make a list of the free agents that you think the Jets should go after, and then recognize that if they get one of them, you're lucky, and most of the heavy lifting is going to have to come on draft day because that's just the way the NFL works, especially when you're a team that's not a very good team. And Zach Wilson, listen, he showed some promise at the end of the year, but nobody's going to sit here and tell you he was Joe Burrow year one or Justin Herbert year one. Guys aren't going to be lining up to play with him right off the bat. You've got some work to do. So that's what I'll be doing. I'll be watching the playoff games. I won't be stressing about recording a post-game podcast. And probably at halftime, I'll continue to map out what I think the Jets should do in the offseason and coordinate future episodes of the podcast. Well, enjoy the time, sir. We'll be in touch next week for our final AFC East roundup of the week of the season. I should say. I will do, well, we'll put a nice bow on what was the 2021 season for most of the people in the AFC East. Meanwhile, one team, there'll only be one left. It's like Highlander. There can be only one. There can be only one <laughs> AFC East team still playing football next week. I can't wait to get back together and talk with it, to everybody about everything that's going on. Where can people find you on social and where can they follow your pod? Well, listen, Drew, just because the season's over for the Jets doesn't mean that we have to stop the fun because anytime you guys want me to come on, if you want to do a bunch of these uh, AFC East roundups even over the off season, and heck, if you want to have me on the regular podcast, the uh, main podcast, the Rock Pile Report, just to give you a outsider's perspective of what you know what's being seen when the Bills are playing, I'm happy to come on anytime. You guys know that. I always say this is like audio therapy for me. Uh, you, people can find me on Twitter at play like a jet one you can get the podcast anywhere where you can download podcasts uh, Apple Spotify Stitcher Google Play we've got playlikeajet.com constantly updating content there we've got our channel on YouTube uh, the play like a jet channel the thunder from down under Luke Grant our uh, secret weapon the kangaroo out of Australia he's always making great videos he's got some good ones coming up we're going to start doing some prospect breakdowns on there as well. There have been some guys that I've been watching that I'm, I'm really liking, and I've been talking about it on the podcast and on Twitter and such. And now that we're getting closer to a free agency and draft season, we're going to talk about that. And I will say, guys, and maybe we can include you on this as well in some way, I'm going to start doing uh, probably next week or the week after what I like to call off-season roundtables. I've been doing these ever since I started Play Like a Jet back in 2017 in the off-seasons. And basically what I do is I find people from different walks of life. So you, it could be somebody who's uh, a Jets beat writer. It could be somebody who's a famous person who also happens to be a Jets fan. And there's, believe it or not, there's quite a few of those. It's, it's kind of funny when, when you realize that famous people – like sports teams too and they like to talk about their favorite sports teams and if they're Jets fan oftentimes they don't get a chance to go through their ideal offseason with some random person that in their workplace or whatever whatever it is that doesn't care 
so you give them that opportunity and you get to hear a wide variety of different perspectives on it. So we're going to be doing a bunch of those. And then, of course, we'll have updates leading up to free agency. We'll have draft people on before the draft. So a lot of content going on. Check it all out. And we've got our store at tpublic.com. That's T-E-E-Public.com. Caps, uh, mugs, hoodies, all of that. Shirts, the whole deal. Guys, I really appreciate it as always. And uh, as I said, tpublic.com. That's T-E-E-Public.com. Because as the great Kevin Nash used to say when he was selling NWO gear, during Monday Night Troll. Buy the shirt! Buy the shirt! <laughs> We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And so that leads us to arguably the most compelling of all the storylines this weekend in the AFC East. Chris, it would have to be, right? The Miami Dolphins winning 33-24 to over the New England Patriots. And here to regale us with the tales of whatever the hell it is that's going on down in South Beach today, Mr. Ralph Artiaga from Three Arts Per Carry. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, you know, how, how are you guys uh, preparing for Mac Jones Part 3? It's, it's a whole thing. It, ask me 20 minutes from now, I'll feel differently about it. Who knows? I will say that I will say this after getting the full Mac Jones experience in two games this past year, Mac Jones is absolutely terrifying while he's getting 40 yard pass interference penalties. <laughs> yeah. So essentially if the refs aren't helping them, but I mean, let's face it, it's the new England Patriots. When are they not? Although I, I guess you could say this weekend. So we're at the stadium. But they, they timed our games up as that they kick off at the same time. We're at the stadium. I look up, and at first I'm like, I, I know I didn't have that much to drink at the tailgate. What do you mean the Patriots are down? How much? Wait, is that 20, 21 what? What is happening here? I mean, first of all, I wish our listener Pat Cleary had made that bet with you. Like, I wish the two of you had made a bet on something substantial. Because you were so confident about winning that you guys would beat the Patriots and Pat... I don't know why he was so convinced that you wouldn't. I mean, does he not know the history here? Yeah, like um, I, I was told, look, uh, I had a great deal of confidence. First of all, I thought that the Dolphins were just better than New England coming into the season. But weeks ago, I was told, yeah, that game matters at all, and the Patriots have no hope beating beating our team. And and I was like, really? And that's coming from inside the, the, the building. And sure enough, the score was 27 to 10. <laughs> and somehow, you know, they cosmetically made it close. Okay, like let's face it, they they made it cosmetically close. But there's a reason why it made it was cosmetically close in the fourth quarter. And Mac Jones ended up with 261 yards passing. You would have thought he threw for 561 yards if he came back that far. But it was just a slew of penalties, some sloppy play, and then they just you know they put it away with one drive at the end of the game, and that was it. For not throwing over 200 yards, the Dolphins were thriving on the scoreboard. Please explain to me how the hell that happens. I mean, I, I the pick six to kind of open the game probably sets the tone. But from there, I kept looking. You know, in the aftermath of the game, I'm looking at the statistics and the box scores. And I'm like, there's no way that Tua threw under 200 yards. How, did they, how, how the hell do you get, Chris, how do you get to 33 points when your quarterback doesn't throw for more than 200? I have no idea. Uh, you score two defensive touchdowns and you run the ball like crazy, <laughs> essentially all game. They opened the they opened the game by taking the opening kickoff and driving it right down the field and scoring. And then the very next play, Mac Jones throws a pick six to Xavier Howard. 
So the score is 14 nothing to start the game, you know? And then it just seemed like the Dolphins just ran out the clock the rest of the way. They kicked the pile of field goals. They ran the ball. And the next thing you know, it's 27 to 10 and pretty much the game's over. And then, of course, you know, uh, the Patriots go on that mad rush at the end. But it was too little too late. So knowing the state of your offensive line, because you've pretty much derided them all season long on this podcast, <laughs> hearing that you guys were able to kind of keep them at bay by running the football, knowing what we know about your backfield, knowing what we know about your offensive line, how impressed did you leave this one with the front seven of the New England Patriots? Well, the, the first thing that I can say is on, on our members-only Patreon, on OnlyFans, I got an, an immediate text from Simon saying they benched Jesse Davis. And I'm like, really? So week 18, and now is when they're benching Jesse Davis. They started a rookie, Robert Jones. He's a guy that we liked in training camp, really physical player. I don't think he's a tackle, by the way. So I don't think that he's in their future plans. I think he's a guard. And he could be a good one, you know, but he was good in training camp and he's a rookie. So what do you expect, right? So they start him at right tackle. Jesse Davis is flat out benched because he's standing there next to the coach in his, in full uniform and never got to play, right? So he just got benched. And lo and behold, Robert Jones actually plays well <laughs> and they run the ball successfully. And sure enough, it leads to a win. So, you know, it begs the question, why did Jesse Davis even start a game this mm-hmm. year if they had a rookie that they trusted in week 18 to play at right tackle? And I guess it's questions like that that lead us to what I mean, because it's nice that you guys beat the Patriots. I mean, we appreciate it. I, I think it's it's <clears throat> it's nice to always see your opponent get humbled before you have to play them. You know, I know people talk about this aura around Bilicek and the organization, but I'd argue that maybe this is the year some of that goes away. I don't know. We're going to talk about that a little bit later in the show, but it's those type of questions right there, Chris. Why is it that a talented rookie player didn't see the field at all in 2021, despite the fact that the guy that you started over him, Jesse Davis, it's pretty widely accepted that he's bad at the game of football. He's probably a backup, not a starter on most teams in the NFL. Why is he being square peg round hold here? What? Well, what's the quarterback situation? What's this? What's the, the questions surrounding this football team all season? Who's calling the plays? Who runs things here? <laughs> this has been a storyline all year of just confusion over the decision making that was going on affecting what was being put on the football field. So. I guess when you look at it in its totality, we shouldn't have been surprised, or at least as surprised as we were, but that was the story of Black Monday. And we all knew that Matt Nagy was pretty much, I mean, if if they didn't fire him, it would be considered malpractice. Um, You you look at Vic Fangio, he was just a guy who, at the very beginning of the season, you know, Mark Schlereth was talking about how at training camp he'd go up to him and ask questions, and Vic Fangio would say, about the offense and Fangio will go, I, I don't know. I got to go talk to my assistants because I don't know anything about that. He goes, no, you're a head coach. You don't get to just be a defensive coordinator, Vic. <laughs> there were some coaches who were kind of asking for it. This Flores thing caught everybody off guard. I, I, You can see what I see as an outsider. Defensive minded head coach, he never created the environment conductive to the growth of an offensive attack. That was the big one. right? I, th- I think what what was the fancy term to use for it? A Politburo? <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> like yeah, he would create uh, like little little fiefdoms, little uh, committees around the team that he would eventually fire every single year. Like, uh, <laughs> let, like let's be clear about that. Everybody keeps saying, "Ah, but this guy's such a great coach." Well, if he's such a great coach, he shouldn't be firing every single offensive coach every single year. Well, like, find somebody that's good at their job. Because he's okay? what you've he, only he's... been here. You've only been here three years, and you fired. Put it this way: he once hired an offensive line coach. Dave, uh, uh, Coach Googs, he has a, I can't pronounce his last name, is Guglielmo is his last mm-hmm. name. Former Patriot guy. I met him, okay? Uh, typical offensive line coach. Great offensive line coach with a great reputation. He fired him after two weeks. <laughs> two weeks, okay? Uh, Googs, you could go back and he was an offensive line coach on championship teams. He was an offensive line coach under Belichick for one of those Super Bowls. So evidently the guy didn't forget how to coach football just because he showed up down here 
And then Brian Flores fires him in two weeks. Well, and so I guess then, Brian Flores figured out that the, the game passed him by all of a sudden in two weeks. Well, and it was just funny to me, like the you know when when you look over the history of what Flores did with the offensive side of the ball, Chris hated or love it. Sean McDermott showed up here, hired Rick Dennison. At the end of the season, determined that Rick Dennison is not made for the type of winning team that he wanted to build. And he should be fired into the sun. Well, that was me. I, I offered to I offered to jettison him and all of him his belongings into the nearest landfill. But nobody took me up on that over at One Bill's Drive. They didn't answer my emails or the physical letters I sent them on the topic. But uh, they fired him. And then they brought in another guy. And 2018, our offense didn't go well, but they worked through it and they worked with each other and they tried to develop something around this quarterback because they understood that consistency was important. It seems like Flores had no clue how to manage that. And rather than say, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to hire guys with experience and then I'm going to take my hands off the wheel. What he went and got a, a lame duck in Changeli, who he thought was a good idea to pair with, uh, Jesus, Ryan Fitzpatrick. That didn't work, or it, it at least didn't work when they started ham-fisting a different quarterback into this. <laughs> like, you can see all of these mistakes that get made over the course of a three-year period, and you say, wait a minute. Well, Changili, Changili said so when when he, quote-unquote, resigned or slash got fired. Like, Changili said so. Changili said we were playing well, and all of a sudden uh, they came to me, uh, mind you, this is right after they had scored 41 points in San Francisco. Okay. So the offense scores 41 points. Like, uh, you're kind of happy with that, right? Mm-hmm. Well, the coach, uh, Changeli said, we scored 41 points in San Francisco. And Brian Flores came up to me and said, we're starting to win next week. <laughs> and, and, okay. So then I guess I got to start figuring things out with the offense. L- lo and behold, Changeli kind of figured things out because, you know, he, they ended up winning some games with, with Tua Tungabalo. But it's this schizophrenic nature of this coach with the offensive side of the ball. Well, and so and you see it all the time. And so you, you see were, it all the time. And you were on Donato Daily, and I caught this piece with you, which is honestly, it's the first time I've seen you on camera. And I got to say, uh, you, you've got a classy setup. Like Chris, his setup is like it's 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 very much Greg Thompson esque. Like you see a lot of mahogany. Yeah, there's some mahogany in there. I think he's got a globe in the background, which makes all of a sudden I'm like Elf. Are you are you a scholar? Are you a worldly man? Like he's what? cultured. He's cultured. He's, <laughs> I'm like all of a well, sudden actually, I feel like what I, should, I have. I feel like what I, I have a monocle behind me. I could actually. Yeah, like I have a I have a couple of curio cabinets behind me. I have mm-hmm. a Muhammad Ali uh, painting. <laughs> I have a Dan Marino jersey behind me. I have an American flag. And, yeah, what people think is a globe is actually a championship belt, a WBC boxing championship belt. Okay. That's up. Uh, that's upper on my on my left-hand okay. side, so you All can right. see it. So, so because it was the first time I'd ever seen your setup, and I was like, damn, Chris, he's got classy digs. We need to step it up a notch. Seems like the only thing that he's missing from the background shot would be a pair of isotoners. <laughs> So, which is a good idea. So, so I heard your appearance on the show, and you brought up that his refusal to overhaul the offensive staff was a part of the reason he was terminated, and that to me was a little bit curious because we just got done talking about all of the anarchy he's wrought on that offensive side of the ball, and now he digs his heels in. Like, I think I think it's it's quite quite apparent that he didn't like being dictated to, <laughs> and maybe he he. He hadn't been dictated to for three years, and now he has the owner and the general manager walking in to his office after he defeats the Patriots, and he has his second consecutive winning season, and he's being told, guess what, Brian? You're firing people now on the offensive side of uh, of the ball, and you're going to fire this guy, and you're going to fire that guy in your offensive staff. And I think Brian Forrest, being kind of the hothead that he is, probably told him, no, I'm the one who fires and hires coaches around here. You don't get to, you don't get to tell me what to do, which is hilarious to me because <laughs> I am certain he was probably going to fire a bunch of those same people that the owner and the general manager wanted him to fire. But yeah. you know, it wasn't their idea. No, it, you know, it wasn't his idea. No, if no, it were his idea would have been fine. And there's something to that because if you look at the Chris, if you look at the trajectory, and Alf, you probably are already aware of this. If you look at the trajectory of coaches who have come from the Belichick coaching tree, not only are most of them failures, 
but they all kind of share this similar, I, I don't know what else to call it, but hubris. They come into these situations and it's almost like there's a sense of entitlement. It's like they took a piece of perfect example. Have you ever been out to the bar with somebody else or, you know, growing up when you were younger who, because they're hanging out with tough guys, acts like a tough guy? Mm -hmm. I've I've seen it. I watched a kid. His nickname is Crow Cop. Why? Because he got mouthy with the wrong kid. And I watched the I, I saw him getting into a pushing match. And I was like, no, you know what, man? I see, I see his stance. You don't want to fight that guy. Why? Because he probably, he can probably handle himself. And blah, 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 he knows, he knows, he knows because he's surrounded by people who used to get into scraps and knew, and he felt tough. And so we go out into the parking lot. We're leaving. The guy leaves behind us and he decides he's going to go confront this guy. And before we could get back there to really break it up, this guy just roundhouse kicked my friend in the head. <laughs> Mirko Crow copped him to the ground. And it was one of the craziest things I've ever seen. But I was like, that's what you get for taking a piece of like everybody else's personality and making it your own when you can't back it up. And I feel like that's the same thing that happens with all of these Bilicekian hires. They bring his attitude and a little bit of his gruffness and a little bit of his hot-headed, you know, I call the shots and I'm in charge. But you've done nothing to earn that. And so all you end up doing is alienating your players alienating yourself from your coaching staff in your front office and eventually it becomes very easy to fire you. We saw And what's here, hilarious yeah. and what's hilarious about all of this is that the day he's fired there's a slew of tweets uh from defensive players saying thank you Brian Flores for taking a chance on me and drafting me in the third round and the fourth round etc cetera, etc cetera, or finding me as an undrafted free agent and giving me playing time and playing for you and then Byron Jones uh, wrote a really nice thing saying you kept us together and most teams would have folded at 1 and 7 everybody's uh lauding Brian Flores not a single offensive player <laughs> not sent a tweet sh- okay. not and trust me when I tell you we have those all right so so there's 53 guys on the roster at least half of them are offensive yeah. players right and th- and I guess uh, that's it and, and I guess that's it. Like, I'm looking at a quote right now. Chris. There's only one. There was actually only one that, that took to social media, and it was Devontae Parker to like the tweet from the team saying that they had fired Brian Flores. So, Chris, because we now have a sweet studio with a giant monitor, just showed me a tweet from Michael Lombardi. Chris, scroll back up so I can see that. The quote, he's been very confrontational with Tua. He knows he's not good enough. It's like... Yeah, that's probably going to ruffle some feathers in the building if that's your attitude towards the rookie quarterback who the franchise is hoping is the face of things. Like, it's one thing to say, okay, my kid isn't doing well enough right now, but I'd like to, I'd like to be a part of him getting there. You know, I feel like that's kind of the track Sean McDermott took with Josh Allen. I don't, I don't think he watched Josh Allen's 2018 performance and said, you know what? This is the guy. This is the guy I want. <laughs> this play right here is acceptable. But I also think he had the wherewithal to say, look, I can't throw the baby out with the bathwater, so I might as well try. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Knowing that his career hinges on that. Instead, Flores just put his head down and said, no, screw this kid. I've read all this stuff about two, uh, about uh, how he was kind of the leading thing about Deshaun Watson. To me, the, the most damning thing for Brian Flores, it was the reason I was saying he was overrated last year. And Tua's, and let's not forget Tua's mysterious, what is now being called a suspension around here. Yeah. His mysterious placement on IR when he's telling everybody, uh, there's actually uh, video evidence and photographic evidence of Tua playing 18 holes of golf mm-hmm. when he got put on IR. Uh, I'm no expert, no medical expert, but uh, he was put on IR for a, a, a thumb. Do you need thumbs to play golf? <laughs> It's 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 a crazy thing when you think about what's gone on in your team on the side of the ball. But for me, it was always going to come back to this. That team, and maybe this speaks to the fact that half the team loved him and half the team didn't. They folded like a cheap tent in must-win situations in back-to-back years when you guys actually had skin in the game. Hmm. When it came down to games where you guys still had something to play for, they just didn't show up. They didn't show up. And that might be the most damning indictment of a coach ever is when not one side, but both sides of the ball just don't show up for you in this ultimate moment where, hey, I'm a good coach because my guys fight together. They play together. They are together. And I've cultivated this. They 
they were no shows. I mean, you guys got more points scored on you by our backups last year than you did our starters. That's a damning thing. And you look and you say, okay, well, why? Well, they quit. <laughs> the team said, look, we're not fighting anymore. Not today. We'll come back and we'll try it again later. That's not the mark of a good coach. That's not a, of a good culture. And so in that way, I mean, I just find this whole thing bizarre because it's back-to-back winning seasons. But if anyone was going to do it, it, it was the Miami Dolphins. Because it's kind of like I've been saying on Twitter for the last few days. One of the things that has plagued your franchise is your owner and his insistence that he wants to win now. And I think that his desire to win now puts him in bad situations when it comes to guys, when it comes to the media, when it comes to the GMs, when it comes to coaching hires, because he's going to jump at things that seem shiny and new. And he's going to push GMs to jump at things that are shiny and new, rather than trying to build something. And I just don't know. I mean, because we could sit here and talk about how attractive your job is. At the end of the day, I feel like no matter who they attract, do, do you feel the way I feel that Ross might continue to be something of a problem unless Chris Greer really can get control of that room? Well, Ross is obviously a problem, uh, but the same reason why he's a problem is why he could be a benefit because well, it could be a good thing. He's an absentee owner. He just is. He only shows up for the games on the weekend. He's in New York Monday through Friday. He's in New York doing business deals or whatever the hell he's doing. And then he just shows up down here and on the weekend to watch the game and to bitch through his to his media buddies on, you know, who screwed up and, you know, which coach is on the hot seat and which one is not. He announced the, the teardown in 2019. And by the way, that was the reason he fired Adam Gase because he presented to Adam Gase, look, I'm going to do this and I'm going to retain you. And Adam Gase said, absolutely not. And then Brian Flores says, I mean, uh, at the time, Stephen Ross told Adam Gase, well, then you're fired if you're not going to go along with this because Chris Greer and I have decided we're going to do this. He gave Chris Greer full autonomy and full power in 2016, and he told him, this is your directive. You're going to gut this entire roster down to nothing, to zero, to the studs, and then we're going to build it right back up. And Chris Greer is responsible for what you see right now on the field, which is essentially half a team and a gaggle of kind of talented players on the offensive side of the ball, namely just Waddle, Gasecki, and maybe Tua. But the rest are really just like, you know, Duke Johnson's had a nice little se- close to the season, but he's an RB2. You know, let's let's face it. Whatever they have, it's just not enough. They have like four players on offense that you actually want to keep. So, you know, it's 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 a blessing. It's also a curse because there's obviously something going on where Stephen Ross just can't, leave well enough alone and we shall see with this next hire because he seems to have gotten the brian flores part i guess fine because i guess he is a good coach as far as a defensive coach he's just not good head coach material so we'll see what his next hire is going to be he's tried pretty much everything right so the only thing that's left is like a really experienced older coach so we shall see you might want to look into bill o'brien on that front then (laughs) Experienced, older, offensive. Yeah, he's great. Yeah, real, real good. Yeah, you know. Well, they're, they're, did you see the three guys that they've they've asked to, to interview? Yeah, you guys before? can. You, I hate saying it like this, but I. You guys took gate. If you guys take Brian Dable, I feel like there's not going to be. It, it'll be mixed emotions here in Buffalo at best. <laughs> Next to Melchitz here in Buffalo at best. Now, before we let you go, I'd be remiss because I don't want to waste this. You said you have, because we're talking about long, you know, gone head coaches that have now left our franchises. You said you have a Doug Marone story, and I would like to hear it, sir. Okay. Uh, uh, Here it goes. It's 2016, okay? And you have to understand they're interviewing a bunch of coaches to try to take over the, the head coaching job here in Miami. And Doug Marone is one of them. And sitting at a table with Doug Marone is a couple of front office guys. And I mentioned their names on OnlyFans. I'm not going to put them here on yeah, the air. for sure. But if, if, if you remember on OnlyFans, I, uh, you could read the names of the guys that were sitting there. But uh, the owner, Stephen Ross, true to his word, you know, being an absentee owner, is on video, right? <laughs> and Doug Marone is going on and on and on and generally impressing with what he wants to do with the personnel, 
And he's essentially talking about the running game and the offensive line. And well, because those are his strong suits. I mean, he was an offensive line coach. He's kind of got that. You know, what I mean, that's his pedigree. So that makes sense that he could probably speak about that pretty well. Yeah, and 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 he's talking about the components necessary for you know for what he would do with the team, and then what he thinks of the of the the current personnel. So everything's going fine. And at one point, he excuses himself and he says, look, I have to go. I have to use the restroom. I'll be right back. And they say, oh, yeah, fine. You know, no problem. Right. So he gets up and a minute passes and three minutes pass. Five minutes pass. Ten minutes pass. It's 16 minutes. And Doug Marone shows right back up to the meeting and continues talking on about, well, you know, this and this and that. The meeting adjourns. And they call for his car, and they see him out out the door as Doug Marone gets into his car. And one of the front office people looks at, at the other and says, that guy got up in the middle of our meeting to go take a shit, didn't he? <laughs> they immediately did not consider his candidacy <laughs> over that. Wow. <laughs> Doug Marone had to go lay down some heat, and they just what? They nixed him because of that? <laughs> Jesus, that's the that's the way it was told to me. I, I'm sure that they probably chose Adam Gase for another reason or, or whatever. But yeah, it was they, a, it was yeah, a they huge saw his, they saw his facial expressions, and they were like, you know what? We need that guy. <laughs> I think it, I, I'm certain it was a huge turnoff. Oh, in I the middle of that. Meeting. That honestly, this, Chris, that that story makes me happy. Yeah, that is a pretty sweet story. <laughs> Elf, we love you. Next week is going to be our final edition of the AFC's Roundup podcast. I can't wait to have you back for it for this season. Uh, we're going to wrap this thing up next week. But in the meantime, the off seasons where you guys do so much draft work, all your draft content, all of your stuff that is kind of universally appealing. Where can people find your draft stuff? Where can they follow you guys on social? And where can they find your podcast? Uh, you can follow us at the number three yards per carry on Twitter. You can get our podcast pretty much anywhere you get your podcasts. And it's also the number three yards per carry. You want to follow me? It's Alf underscore Artiaga. And that brings us to the Patriots and the Buffalo Bills. And I love the fact that Chris is still working on that Seagrams. Chris, it's, it's so smooth, isn't it? Yeah, well, the one thing that... Uh you fail to realize is uh power of editing <laughs> and how <laughs> how this is recorded. Chris, way to tear down the fourth wall for our guests. That's how I do it. It's See, just, I just want him thinking that you drink like a girl. No, it did not take me the entire episode <laughs> to drink this. Just figure out how the show is edited. The Patriots lost again somehow in Miami, Chris, and I don't understand that. Like, I don't understand... A lot of people like to kick dirt on the idea. Patrick, Patrick Cleary was ballsy enough to try to make a significant bet with El Fartiago over this. The idea that the Patriots were somehow this juggernaut of a team here in 2021, that they could change course on, I don't know, the place where they have a really ugly record as of late. I mean, it, this isn't something that you can chalk up as a quote-unquote Brady thing or a fluke even. They're now two and seven in their last nine trips down to South Beach under Bill Belichick. Here are some of the the quarterbacks and head coach combinations that they've lost to in those nine games. Chris, stop me if stop me if you hear one that makes you want to vomit. Okay, first of all, Dan Campbell and Ryan Tannehill. Do you even remember them being a head coach and quarterback combination? Uh, and yeah, Dan Campbell's an interim. Yeah. Interim head coach Dan Campbell and Ryan Tannehill. Uh, Adam Gase and Jay Cutler. I didn't know that they beat anybody except for emphysema. Like, I thought that that was the only thing Jay Cutler ever beat. Uh, Brian Flores and Ryan Fitzpatrick in a game that literally cost them a bye week and forced them to play the Titans in the wild card round and then summarily got them bounced from the playoffs. The same coach, Brian Flores, and quarterback Tua Tungvaloa, Chris, what? Th- this guy got fired this week. 
Yeah. And yet he's got two wins over Bill Belichick in the last two seasons. Yeah, you know what? I don't know if I would have done that. Fired Flores. In fact, three. Three because they beat Cam Newton and them last year down there in Miami, too. He's four, uh, I think Flores is 4-2 and two all time against the Patriots. I think that's the record for Flores. You got beat by a former... Like, we, we were talking about the... You had to drink that Seagram's because Alabama lost in the national title game to Georgia. And that's the reason that you were so emphatic. Like, you had to drink a Seagram's because of the... Which we talked about earlier in the week. You were so emphatic that, well, he doesn't lose to former assistants. Did it twice this year. Bill Belichick doesn't lose to former assistants because he, they don't have the magic. He does. So to know that that guy beat them twice, and then you know what you said as a division opponent? Nah, I don't need that guy. He must have done a really, really poor job, right? Yeah. But also, so did he. So did Bill Belichick. It's pretty terrible. And when you look at some of the other numbers that come out of that game, it's it's easy to start to question where things are going. I mean, we talked in our preview show with Mike DeBate earlier this week about, I just asked the question, where the hell did Matthew Judon go? Matthew Judon. Now, Chris, he was going up against a rookie right tackle, as Alfar Tiago just explained, that a rookie right tackle who wasn't good enough to beat out Jesse Davis, who maybe that's a, maybe that's a misstep by the coach that cost him his job, but you're going up against a rookie. You're a highly paid pass-rushing outside linebacker. He finishes the game with three tackles and two pressures. That's it. Two pressures. What are you getting for your money from this guy, Chris? Because he's been a non-factor in the Bills games, too. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's, I mean, Belichick was doing... Uh... When they signed him, that was supposed to be one of the crown jewels of their free agency. Well, yeah, they threw a lot of money around in free agency. Now, you know, we've made jokes about it. Some of them had to be edited out. About Jonu Smith. Yep. And how he's getting paid just as much money as Hunter Henry, but Hunter Henry's the only tight end who's actually a part of the offense. There's just a lot here to unpack and to question. And I, like, you go back and you look at the rushing attack. You say, okay, this is a team that just got pounded by the Tennessee Titans. And people say, oh, the Titans are overrated. They suck. They're the worst number one seed ever. Okay, well, if you want to believe that they're a bad football team and they just put it to Miami the way that they just did, then wouldn't you intrinsically believe, Chris, that the Patriots, who were built to play defense and run the football, should be able to execute the same the same way, right? Yeah. I'm looking at... They don't have a single running back in that game with more than 50 yards rushing. They scored two rushing touchdowns off of penalties late in the game, as Elf kind of alluded to. But you lost again, and you didn't look good in it. It wasn't ever close, like materially close. You lost. You lost the division before the Bills could win it. That's where I fall on this. You as a football team had a must-win football game in front of you because you don't know. Roll the dice. It's 13-10 here in Buffalo. Maybe your team has a shot at winning the AFC East. And instead, you lost that game. You were First of all, you were trailing by multiple scores early. But you lost that football game before the Bills could win it. You don't get to tell me that that's a great football team. You don't. Now, does this feel like an overreaction to you? Like, maybe hearing me say these things. I mean, you always overreact, so... It's no different. Okay. You're overreaction guy. But does this guy. feel, when you look at how that game played out, how our game went, the way all of this ran, do you feel like I'm crazy for insinuating that maybe some of the shine is wearing off here? Belichick took this team. I mean, he took this team as far as he could. Yeah, I mean, Mac, Mac Jones has limitations. You have a limited they quarterback. Have, well, so you thought not you could only hide is, his limitations not by only spending is he, a ton of money not in the offseason. Not only is he limited, they also have handcuffs on him because he's a rookie. I, I believe some of that. But the fact remains that when you look at that loss and you say to yourself, again, it's the same thing I said about Brian Flores. 
You know, I go back to that point. When you're the coach who says, my team needs to win this game, it's a must-win scenario, and you don't, not just don't, but emphatically don't. You fall on your face. I question your preparation. I question all these things. And earlier in the week, we talked about this narrative, Chris. Remember the, this, old, this old idea that, well, oh, the Patriots off a loss. Man, you don't want to be the team that has to play them after they lost one. That was with Tom Brady, a first ballot Hall of Fame vindictive son of a bitch at quarterback. Without Tom Brady, after a loss, their record ain't great. And I got to tell you, Chris, if there was a time when they were going to quote unquote turn it around, it's kind of like we talked about. Wouldn't it have been after the you come off a Monday Night Football win where you didn't play well, but you won? I mean, I guess you executed your game plan well, but your team didn't do well. You go to the bye week, you get healthy, you come out of the bye week, and you get kicked in the face by the Indianapolis Colts. So then you say, you know what, guys, don't worry about it. We had a high-energy week of practice. Everything's going to be fine. The media's going, hey, it's Bill and Chick's revenge game. Woo! He's going to pack this thing back up. It's going to be great. And then you get kicked in the face by the Buffalo Bills. And then you play the Jaguars and you go, okay, see, see, we still got the mojo. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Never mind. You're playing a team that's drafting in the top four. And then you go up against another team with a winning record and you get kicked in the face again. Maybe some of this is just worn off. The magic that Bill Belichick used to have in terms of like, oh, you don't want to see him after a loss. Chris, I'd argue it. That maybe that narrative needs to be put away for a while. Not forever. Not yet. But maybe for a while. Because right now, they've shown no ability to right the ship. And in meaningful moments, they're dropping the ball. I, I don't know what else to say about them. And so that kind of leads to this angst that we as Bills fans feel. Right? If, I, if I'm going to talk about our week, I mean, we beat the Jets, and you heard all about it in our recap show. <sighs> John Fina. John Fina's a dude. I like that guy. And one of the things that I've taken away, I mean, people are surprised when they find out that, now Chris, what what Buffalo Bills podcast do you listen to regularly? Cover one. Uh, Bruce exclusive. Uh, I think that's all I can fit in my podcast schedule your podcast schedule yeah because we listen to a lot of stand-up comedy we listen to a lot of stand-up comedy podcasts i listen to a lot of sports but like i'll listen to the herd i'll listen to 32 thoughts i'll listen to the jeff merrick show because when i work on the weekend saturday is for sports podcasts sunday is for comedy okay all right that makes sense i mean because you're working on a sunday instead of watching football that's kind of a joke so you and then mondays and (laughs) mondays and tuesdays are generally uh like daily I wouldn't say daily podcast, but the radio shows that you can get in podcast form. So for me, there's only a handful of sports podcasts that I have time to listen to because most of what I'm doing, a lot of times during the day, I can't listen to as many podcasts as I'd like to. One of the things that I enjoy doing is I I enjoy the off tackle of John Fina. And there's a reason for that. He's not afraid. Uh, he, they, they do some interesting things. We talked about it. I, li- I like his film breakdowns. I like hearing from, because Chris, we, we see people break down film who, you know, Brett Coleman will do a job of it. And he does a great job. The guys from Cover One do a great job. But it's always different when you hear it from a football player. Someone who was in the trenches actually did that job at that level and knows what, he knows what that guy's job probably was on that play. Yeah, it's, he he's not afraid to speak out against what I'd call fan-created narratives. <laughs> One of my favorites was somebody asked him on his podcast, you know, somebody asked the question, do, are, you know, do you think so-and-so is playing scared in that moment because they, they're afraid to get hurt? And he laughed and just talked about it. I was like, I, I don't think you understand. If you make it to the NFL level, the job is so mechanical, much so much more than it is emotional. That if you're thinking about on a play-to-play basis the game, you're probably not very good, and you probably don't last very long. So there are emotional fans like myself who, and here I am, I know you're hearing this late in the week, and I just, I'm trying to remain as grounded as possible, because I know earlier in the week I might get fired up. Every day it's going to be something different, 
every five hours, I'm going to feel differently about what this game is and how I should feel about it. But there's fans like myself who are going to conflate what this game means because, as we discussed in the preview show, we still carry around the scar tissue. We still own that emotional baggage that we drag around from the last 20 years of Bill Belichick and Tom Brady abusing us on the football field, emotionally, whatever it is. We romanticize this sport to a degree that belies the fact that it's way more mathy and it's more like science. It's a lot more like engineering (laughs) and more than a solid 80% of the fan base realizes. And that's why it's always refreshing to talk to a guy like Fina. I mean, it's literally like comparing a documentary to a Marvel comic flick. And we try to bridge the gap between those two things sometimes because I feel like that's important. I feel like it's a good idea to try to live on both sides of the fence enough that I can keep both feet on the ground. Because, Chris, if I start to believe one more than the other, what happens? We get too wrapped up in the emotional aspect of football. Really? You getting wrapped up emotionally? I know. And, and listen, emotions do happen. Look at Sunday night. Reed Ferguson, choir boy, doesn't swear, won't ra- probably won't raise his voice in front of your mother because he doesn't want to embarrass you. He was going to fight that guy. It was awesome. Yeah, it was a nice wrestling takedown. My phone exploded. Mine too. People just texting, read, 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 read. So it, it was one of the, it was easily one of the greatest, like, because I look down and I'm like, is that 69? Yeah. And Hugo grabs me and goes, that's, that's Reed. He's going to fight that guy. I was like, Reed, did, does Reed know how to fight? And then I think, Chris, how naive is that of me? We love to romanticize the emotion of this sport. The reality is it comes down to math 90% of the time. And so while we feel this overbearing weight on us from this matchup, the reality is, is it's going to come down to X's and O's. And when you think about that, whose horses do you like more? Whose horses do you think are better? Ours. On offense, I'll take ours. Yeah, if you were to go position by position, you look at this, I say, okay, we obviously have the more dynamic wide receiver group. I mean, they're, they're still putting Nikhil Harry on the field, and that guy probably should have been a tight end or working at Popeye's like three months ago. Um, you've got oh, what their defense, their defense is good, but they're not unsolvable. This week we watched the Miami Dolphins. They, they ran on them. They ran on the Patriots and you go, wait a minute. All they did was add one extra offensive lineman and all of a sudden you can be ran on. That seems suspect. Are you good? Christian Barmore didn't get hurt until the final play of the game. So are you actually a good football team? We'll know on uh, Saturday. We'll know on Saturday. Win or lose. It's I know that fans are going to try to equate this to the legacy. And I understand it because I do feel that. I feel like there's I feel like there's a reckoning that has to happen here. I said it earlier this week. I feel like there's there's some finality, Chris, because we've been putting nails in the Patriots' coffin now little by little over the last two years. Tom Brady left. Guess what, Bill? You're not that good. Or at least you are. You're still a great coach. You just don't have us beat from an X's and O's standpoint. I go back to that last Patriots game. Bill Belichick is a phenomenal quitter. After games, when he loses, Chris, you've watched him storm off the football field just as many times as I have. Yeah, many, and then apologize. How, how many kids did you grow up with? Like you used to, you used to run rec sports down in Alpharetta, Georgia. How many poor sport kids would you see storm off the instead of doing handshakes? Would just storm away from the game? Not many, because they knew it was rec. I had more issues with coaches. Really? Oh yeah. Okay, so how many coaches wouldn't be civil to the other coach in a loss? Uh, it happened a lot in girls basketball. <laughs> This seems like the most random place. Nine, ten-year-old girls basketball. Jesus. But so it happens. And so Bill Belichick, knowing that when he gets embarrassed or when something bad happens to him, he is the first one to hit the skids, go to the locker room. He doesn't say a peep to anybody. He doesn't shake hands. He doesn't wave high. He sought out Josh Allen in the aftermath of that game in Foxborough. He sought him out because he respects that guy. Now, you're talking about a guy who's a football zealot. He can, He's divorced. 
the only if you read reports, the only family he has a relationship with are the ones who are on his football team and the ones who he can talk football with. He deifies the game of football and forsakes a lot of other things in his own life at the mantle of that. So to know that that's the guy that Sean McDermott has to go up against, I'm not surprised his record's two and seven when you pair that lunatic with a Hall of Fame quarterback, maybe the best to ever do it. At the same time, now we're in the driver's seat in that position. He's settled with a rookie, and he knows it. So when he seeks out Josh Allen, it's an acknowledgement that, hey, you're special. You're worth me. He doesn't go over and say anything to Sean McDermott. Maybe it's just a passing, hey, I'm going to talk to your quarterback. He seeks out Josh because he knows Josh is special. He loves that because he loves things that are special about the game of football because he's a football junkie. In that way, <laughs> I, I just I look at that and I say to myself, it's hard to remove the emotion from that because clearly that guy's emotional about this. This matters to him on a level that's bigger than just did I win or did I lose? And so in that way, for as much as I want to sit here and tell you guys not to take it personally or not to take it seriously, understand that this matters. What happens in this game will echo for a while, whether we want it to or not. And the Buffalo Bills have to find a way. I mean, we have the we have a better quarterback. We've got a we've got comparable defensive players smattered throughout our team. We've got better playmakers. Do we have a better coach? Probably not, but I'd like to see him take a swing at the... I'd, I'd like to see Sean McDermott come come for the throne. No matter how this thing ends, Chris, this it's only the second time that we've ever faced each other in the playoffs. Ever. I like it. It's I said be, last week I wanted them in the playoffs. I want this. It's going to be special, and the fallout of this, win or lose, is going to echo. I can't wait to see how it turns out. Chris, why don't you thank our guests for showing up? Oh, Duggan and Buggin Enterprises? Is that what you came up with? That was a, that was a real thing. I'd never heard of it. I Googled because my brain was on the fritz. Well, yeah, it's what you get for drinking a Seagram's. Yeah. <laughs> Scott Mason and Alf Artiaga. Duggan and Buggin Enterprises. Jesus. That was apparently in a faction in the early 2000s. Scott's going to listen to this, and he's going to come hit you with a steel chair. He doesn't listen to us. Folks, thank you so much for showing up to 18 weeks of this nonsense. Next week will be our final AFC East roundup. We'll recap everything, how the teams, uh, how the season in its totality went for most of the division. Uh, things things we wish went better, things things that give us hope for the next year, things that we know have to improve, things we're worried about, our fears, our hopes, our dreams. Chris, one of the, one of these teams in the AFC East is going to get to continue their journey. God, I can't wait. I can't wait to see who it is, but for tonight we got to get out of here. I'm Drew Gear. That's Chris Kruger, and this has been your AFC's Roundup.